And <clears throat> that will be shown on the next slide. And you see the, we've gone through all sorts of spiritual disciplines, um, intimacy and simplicity and silence and solitude, surrender, prayer, fasting, humility, confession, and now we are at sacrifice and tithing. This series is loosely based on a book by Chuck Swindoll called So You Want to Be Like Christ, and it's a good read. And if any of you are interested in that or haven't read it yet, um, I would certainly encourage you to do so. It's not heavy. It's the kind of thing you can go through um, with someone you know and love or on your own, and it uh, is really uh, a, good, uh, a good study. We are also tying each of these to the life of Jesus, looking for where Jesus actually talked about this or carried this out uh, in his own life. And obviously, the overall example that we kind of recognize and know for our lives is the Lord Jesus. So, as Peter said so well, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. The... <clears throat> The overarching concept in the whole area of spiritual disciplines is really about relationship. And in the next slide, you will remember from when I spoke a few weeks ago um, that the, it is really an invitation to a relationship. So you see that in... This, in this uh, scripture we have in Revelation, Jesus comes to us wanting not just for us to understand the facts, not just for us to know the principles and the teachings of the Bible, but he wants us to be in a relationship with him. And in these spiritual disciplines, what we are looking to do is build and grow our relationship with the Lord Jesus. So the one today is part of that journey. And, and it, it, this area, as we develop disciplines in these areas of sacrifice and tithing, it actually helps us in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And I hope that we can sort of grasp that together this morning as we wrestle with this. So the meaning of sacrifice, it's actually interesting to look it up in the dictionary and to see, and then these are uh, a few definitions for sacrifice and then for tithe. So for sacrifice, it is an act of offering to a deity something precious, the killing of a victim on an altar, um, something offered in sacrifice, and destruction or surrender of something for the sake of something else. So we kind of get that. That's the the meaning, the concept of sacrifice. Tithe is interesting because it, it, in the Merriman-Webster Dictionary, it talks about a tenth part of something paid as a voluntary contribution or as a tax, especially for the support of a religious establishment. The obligation represented by individual tithes or tenth or a small part. So there you get the sort of sacrifice and tithe concept. And you can maybe sort of see a link, or maybe for some of us we look at it and say, well, how are those two related? Well, let's first of all talk about sacrifice. So 
Sacrifice is at the very core of the Christian gospel. I looked for the right word for sacrifice, and, and it's like it's the essence. It's the foundation. It's the whole thing. Everything is based on it. And I was looking for that right word, and I'm not sure I got it with core. But it is just, it's everything about our faith is about sacrifice. And of course, it is about the ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. But when you go back to the Old Testament, you get these types and illustrations that help us to understand the teachings of the New Testament. So one of the stories that is back there in Exodus chapter 12, I'm going to read it through because this one captures it so well. But as I'm covering this one, you're probably going to think of 10 other ones and like, yes, they're also valid. It's just that you can't do them all. So I picked this one as one to help us to, as, a, as an illustration or to help us to get the concept of what this sacrifice was all about. So in Exodus chapter 12, the setting here is the nation of Israel have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And Moses has now risen up as their leader, and he is challenging the Pharaoh in Egypt to let the nation of Israel go. And Pharaoh is resisting it. He's, Pharaoh is both afraid of the nation of Israel because they've gotten so big, but they also have a whole economy and a whole way of life that is based on having the Israelites as their slaves. And so the, there's this tension that's there. God has sent nine different plagues, and after each one, Pharaoh has hardened his heart and said, no, I will not let them go, even though some of them were terrible to be endured by the, uh, the nation of Egypt. But so here we are, the setting is that they've had nine of them, and now, while the Israelites are still in the land of Egypt, as it says, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. So notice how important this is. The Lord says to Moses, tell the people of Israel, I'm resetting the calendar with what's going to happen now. Okay? We can't even imagine that. But this is what God said to them. Take note, I'm resetting the calendar based on what is going to happen here. <clears throat> Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Let's just pick out a few key points here. <clears throat> One animal per household. <coughs> if they're small households, they can share. The animal is, has to be a male. It has to be one year old, a sheep or a goat. And what's fascinating is it has to have no defects. Now remember, 
the children of Israel are simply hearing these words from God. They have no idea that in fact, as God is giving them these instructions, he, his mind is on what would happen over a thousand years later when his son would be the sacrifice for our sins. So God is setting these things up for them. His mind is on his son, his one and only son. So he tells them it has to be a male and it has to be, have no defect. Isn't that interesting? Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. <coughs> that same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, the legs, and the internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. When I read this, and I've read it so many times, I get goosebumps just thinking about the imagery and the, 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 the model, the illustration that this is, uh, what God is giving to us. This sacrifice, they had to get to know this animal. This animal, they were to keep it. They have selected it on the 10th day, but they keep it. Other, passage, or other scriptures seem to indicate they brought it into their home and lived with it for those three days. But it was an animal that they got to know. And they knew that that animal was going to be sacrificed for them. They had to take that lamb on the 14th day and they had to sacrifice it at twilight. Can you think about the accuracy of Scripture. The Lord Jesus was on the cross from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. As it got towards sundown, they, what did they do? They came to those thieves on the cross next to Jesus and to Jesus and they wanted to break their legs to hasten their death because the next day was what? It was the Passover. It was the celebration of this very event. And so as it got towards twilight, they were to take this animal and kill it. And then that animal needed to be roast with fire as a whole animal. The Lord Jesus was the sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. He was offered on that altar of Calvary's cross. There he laid down his life. Fire speaks of judgment. It was there on that cross that he took the judgment for your sins and for my sins. And he was offered as a whole burnt offering to God the Father.
Notice also the personal application. Imagine being the firstborn son in that home as he sees the blood from that animal taken and put on the doorpost of his home. And he knows it is that blood that shelters him from the judgment of God. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meat with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And this plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Judgment was coming on Egypt. And there was one way and only one way to be sheltered from that coming judgment. And that was through the blood of the Paschal Lamb, of the Passover Lamb. There was no other way. And as we read the story, we find that God was true to his word and exactly as what he had said. That destroying angel came through the land of Egypt. And in those homes, there was one dead in every home where there was no blood on the door. Brothers and sisters, there is judgment coming. It is a message that is not well received in our world today. It is a message that is seldom preached in our churches today. But just as there was judgment that was going to fall on the land of Egypt, and that judgment came, so there is judgment that is coming on this world. And that judgment is coming, as sure as this judgment came on Egypt. And there is one way, and there is only one way, to be sheltered from the judgment that is coming. And that is to have the blood on the door of our hearts. The Lord Jesus is the Lamb. But you and I need to take that and apply Apply it to the door of our hearts. We need to do that by faith, by receiving the Lord Jesus as our own Savior, receiving him into our hearts. It is a personal matter, and our lives and our eternity depend on it. If there's anyone here, if there's anyone under the sound of this message, where you know that the blood of Christ has not yet been applied to the door of your heart, I plead with you, do it today. Don't put it off. The oldest son in each of those homes wouldn't have wanted his father to procrastinate. He wouldn't have wanted to say, I'll get to it later. He knew that he was only secure if the blood was on the door. That's the core of the gospel. And it's all about sacrifice. If we go now to, over to 1 Corinthians, we find an amazing verse. It says there that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So if there's any doubt as to does this in fact link, Scripture itself shows us that this is all 
speaking of Christ. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us in 1 Corinthians 5. Go back a little bit earlier while Jesus was here and you see John the Baptist. The day that Jesus comes towards him and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Way back in Isaiah, in the, in the prophet Isaiah, you have these words written. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. And then as 1 Timothy expresses it so well, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. Sacrifice is a part of, it is the fundamental part of the story. And it is crucial that we each know it, accept it, and believe it. Now, once we have come to know and follow Jesus, and sometimes when we tell the story of, or we invite folks to follow Jesus, we can make it sound like it's just kind of a buying a ticket to La Ronde. Like you, you, you accept Jesus and everything's going to be happy, everything's going to be wonderful, and your life will be great, and you'll just, this is just it. This is the way to live. Actually, we find that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. It was Jesus who said to us that unless a kernel of grain falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But when it dies, it produces many seeds. And so every spring, we're longing for spring right now, as we start to see those seeds that have fallen into the ground and died, as we start to see them, that new life spring up, we know that in creation, in the cycle of the seasons, God has given us a reminder of Christ's death for us and of the truth that we know in the word of God that it is through sacrifice that our lives are fulfilled and are worthwhile. And so in Ephesians 2, it says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Those sacrifices offered in the Old Testament, it's, it says that as, the, as that, those offerings were offered up, that it was a sweet smell, it was a sweet aroma to God. The Lord Jesus, as he offered himself on Calvary's cross, it was that sweet aroma to God. You and I, brothers and sisters, are now called upon to follow in the steps of Jesus. And our worship involves sacrifice. Worship without sacrifice is not biblical worship. It is all part of our response. It is all part of our calling to follow in the steps of Jesus. And so in Galatians 2, 
Paul says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you notice every one of these verses ties sacrifice into it? Because sacrifice is the core. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a well-known German theologian, he died in a concentration camp right at the end of the Second World War. One of his sayings that is often quoted is when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Following Jesus is a call to sacrifice. It is a call to death to ourselves and to live for Christ who died for us. Now we're going to go on to tithing and then we'll see how sacrifice fits into tithing. So, the home I have put up there, I'm going to tell you a little story now. Maybe it'll help to bridge this. So, that's the home I lived in for basically my high school and until I was the last part of my high school and then until we were married. When we moved into that home, there were a dad and a mom and six children. That home is about 900 square feet and there were three bedrooms. My brother and I took it upon ourselves to build a fourth bedroom in the basement and our mother told us how much room we could have for this bedroom and then how much she needed for her laundry room and she drew the line on the floor as to where we could build the wall. Then she went to bed. When she got up the next morning, the wall was built, and it wasn't quite on the line. So she ended up with a very small laundry room, and we ended up with a bigger bedroom. True story. So this was a home our family moved into because my father had decided that he was going to leave his job as the vice president of the White Freight Liner Truck Company, and he was going to go into full-time Christian ministry. So he was going to be a Bible teacher and preacher, and he would trust God to provide for the family. So for the teenage children, and for those not teenagers yet, this was a tough road. We were going from a much bigger home that we enjoyed out in Mississauga, and we were moving into this tiny little home that uh, we were not very pleased about. And it was tiny. There was a table in our kitchen that barely held uh, our family. We had to be packed in there like sardines to sit at the table. And there was, a, um, there was a piece of wood that was sort of at the base going through the middle of the table. And that kept everybody's feet on the right side, okay? But I started to date a gorgeous young lady from Toledo, Ohio, and she would come up to visit us in this home, and my brothers would like to bug her. And she didn't know about the piece of wood at the bottom. So when she would get really bugged, she would try to kick them under the table, and she would just hit the wood. And of course it would hurt, and then the, the boys, my younger brothers, would get great fun out of that. Why I am telling you this story is because there was sacrifice that went on as a family, but there were those who sacrificed to 
support the family. And this is the amazing truth of sacrifice and tithing and how this comes together. My dad went to be with the Lord very suddenly, right in that house when he was 49. And I and my brothers were not yet old enough to be able to provide for the family. So there was a period of time when it was, things were going to be really rough. There is a family in Toronto named the Mollards. The Mollards lived in a home smaller than this. The Mollards, I found out, when Dad suddenly passed away, I was left to look after the estate and to clean things up. When I went through the financials for what my parents were living, dealing with, here was a... Still makes me emotional. A monthly gift. Every month, regular as clockwork, from the Millard family. That's sacrifice, and it's tithing that it all comes together. There was also a time in that house when we had cream of wheat. Breakfast, lunch, supper, cream of wheat. Powdered skim milk. Anybody had powdered skim milk? That's why I have a mustache, to keep the lumps from coming through. But while we were running out of food, we got down as a family in that living room and we prayed. We had our cars parked over at the side, just like you can see the two there. And this is crazy. While we were praying, our doorbell rang and another family named the Hayhoes, they're both with the Lord now, they were embarrassed, but God had told them to go and buy us groceries. And so they had a station wagon. Some of the younger ones don't even know what those are, but it's kind of like a van, but not as high as a van. And it was backed into our carport right there that you can see, and it was full of groceries. And they had just, God had told them, go buy us groceries. That's sacrifice, and it's tithing. <clears throat> so what are the roots of tithing? How does this, where did this come to be? Lots of people will say, well, tithing was an Old Testament concept, but it's not really there anymore in the New Testament. I'm hopefully going to not let you feel good about that statement in the next 15 minutes. So, in Genesis, you get the genesis of it. So, after Abraham had returned from his victory, he had had a big war, he had recovered his nephew um, and a whole bunch of stuff, and he had been successful, and it says, after Abraham returned from his victory over Kedor Lamer and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God most high, brought Abraham some bread and wine. 
Melchizedek blessed Abraham with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. This is probably the first time that we actually get tithing in Scripture, where it's, it, it is the first time where it's really clear that it is a tenth, and it was given from Abram to Melchizedek as a, as a token of worship. He was a, uh, Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High, and it was a sign of his recognition of the fact that it was God who had defeated his enemies for him. To just give you a little hint as to why I'm not going to let you off the hook so easy, Abram also gave the other 90% away. So just, just check that, because we're going we're gonna to see that tithing, it's not like tithing has gone away. It's just gotten worse. So in uh, Leviticus 27, we have one-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. These are the commands that the Lord gave through Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. So it's in the law. It's right there. It's, one of the, it's part of the commandments that was given by the Lord on Mount Sinai. It is key to the law and a part of the Old Testament that one-tenth of the produce of the land. And there was also, if you kept reading in there in other verses, you see one-tenth of the animals and so on. So there was a concept of a tenth that went to the Lord that was there in the Old Testament. But you say, but tithing isn't mentioned in the New Testament. Not so, not so, don't go so fast there. Look at what Jesus said. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Huh? You catch that? Jesus didn't set aside tithing. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What had happened here in the Pharisaical, the Pharisees had taken the law and they had carried it to the nth degree. So now even when you had a herb garden and you were growing spices in a little corner, you had to carefully make sure that one-tenth of whatever you grew anywhere went to the Lord. Probably not what the intent was back with the law. But they were like carrying it out to the finest degree, but then in lots of other ways, they were not honoring God in terms of justice, mercy, and faith. So what Jesus is really teaching here is that the heart of God and your heart is what needs to be involved. This is not a legal thing. This is a matter for the heart. But he doesn't just set it aside. Okay, so now, after Jesus had taught that, after we've had all the Old Testament teachings, we have the great sacrifice that happens. The Lord Jesus, and we're following this chronologically, so there's been the before the law, there was the time with Abraham, with Melchizedek. Then there is the law where it's clearly taught. Then we have the 
Jesus confirming it, but now in Jesus' death, we have the ultimate sacrifice. And watch how it changes. After Jesus has died and risen again, we find the believers together in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. Brothers and sisters, do you see the difference? This is now radical. As I say, in, in the story with Abraham and Melchizedek, you get a hint at it because Abraham gives 10%, but then he actually gives away the other 90% as well because he, he doesn't want in any way for Sodom, for the king of Sodom to be able to say he's made Abraham rich. And he says, no, you take everything. But what we find is once we have the example and we understand that you and I are not our own, we are bought with a price, then we realize, and it comes like this dawning realization to us, everything we have is the Lord's. And these early church brethren, they may well have been taught, and they may well have followed the, this was Jerusalem, so they probably were used to tithing. But it suddenly is dawning on them after the great sacrifice and resurrection of our Savior, that's not 10% anymore. It's now 100%. What you and I have is not ours. We are simply stewards. And look at what radically changed amongst these people. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy person among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. I don't read anything here about 10%. I don't read that when they sold the land, they, 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 they you know, gave 10%. No, they gave the money to the apostles to give. So there was an amazing, dawning realization here that this is all God's. They give an example of Joseph, one of the apostles, nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the land, the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Again, brought the money. No 10% there. So after tithing, after the great sacrifice, we have come to this new realization. In the... Philippians 4 passage that was read to us already, you see how it is, giving is interwoven with the message and the growth and the proclamation of the gospel. Paul writes and he says, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on to Macedonia. No other church did this. Even while I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. The verses that were read to us this morning Show they're, they're before these ones, and they basically show Paul's amazing, I put it just a bowl of like soup and bread there, because Paul says, I've learned to be content with very little or with much. So this wasn't about Paul wanting stuff. It wasn't about Paul wanting things. He wanted praise. He wanted blessing that would come to them. I want a gift from you. 
I don't want to get from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. And then he writes something that I have never yet seen in a mission letter from a mission organization. Look at what he says. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts that you've given me. You ever got that in an appeal letter? This was not a smart appeal letter. Paul's writing them saying, hey, I, I got plenty. But this is the result, brothers and sisters, of hearts that are so full, recognizing that everything we have is the Lord's, that we're ready to just give joyfully and give abundantly to God's work. So New Testament giving results in all glory to God our Father forever and ever. And there's that reminder as we do this that this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is a tendency for us to hoard. There is a tendency for us to want to hang on to, build, grow, build our nest egg, get bigger and bigger, get it better and better. And yes, with just, as Rockefeller said, I just need 10% more. And that then we'll be able to start giving. But you know what? Our God, whom we serve, is able to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. Our job is to recognize we are simply stewards. So according to New Testament giving, we are to give generously, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8. He wasn't writing about the Corinthians, by the way. But he's talking about those that we're giving. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I still have much to learn in my life, brothers and sisters. But I have observed something. I have observed that those who give sparingly, they are stressed. Because they're living at such a high level that it comes with a lot of stress. Some of them say they do it for their kids. I hate to break it to you, but your kids just want time with you. They don't need that bigger house. They don't need that fancier car. They don't need that. They need you. They need me. And they need our time. But we have a tendency to think we're doing this and then we will give. When you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. When you sow generously, you reap generously. This is not prosperity gospel. God doesn't say if you give $1,000, he'll give you back 10000 What I think actually happens, and it's an amazing thing, and we'll probably get some chat about this afterwards, but I think what happens is when you give $100, God helps you to be satisfied with less. And when you give another $100, God helps you to be satisfied with less. So what happens is you effectively become wealthier. Do you follow me? It's not that he actually does this where, okay, you're going to get, you know, it, it's, it's that our, the whole thinking, our whole mindset becomes different as we, as we discover the joy of giving. Consistently, on the first day of each week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. There is a discipline in consistency. The government even knows that. Think about deductions at source. 
Can you imagine how upset you would be if you got your full paycheck all through the year and then you got a bill from the government on December 31st for X percent of all the money that you had earned that year? Can you imagine? And can you imagine trying to pay the bill? So the government gets giving consistently and does deductions at source so that the money's taken off right away. Maybe they got it from the Bible. <laughs> Joyfully, each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It is a joy to give. It is a pleasure to give. It is part of the Christian disciplines to give. It draws us nearer to God as we give joyfully and abundantly towards his work. It is one of the privileges. So, at RBC, generously, I suggest you come to the AGM next week and see where it actually goes. It might help you and encourage you and to actually think about this from a Christian giving standpoint. Sometimes we think of the financials as also boring. If you think about all the people that have given towards the work so that, in fact, missionaries can get can get helped and so that the work of God can get done here at RBC, it's pretty exciting. Consistently, we've got ways to give so that you can do it online, you can do it in the bag that gets passed around. And as, as Paul said in, the, in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, each one of you set aside. And joyfully, I just say discover the joy of giving. As we do it, it is a huge blessing. And so, I wrap with a few principles. Romans 12 and 1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will, be, he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And as D.L. Moody said so long ago, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. Right? So you and I can think, yes, we're going to do this. Yes, this month I'm going to start. Well, next month I'm going to start. I just got to do this first. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be living sacrifices. God has blessed us. The Lord Jesus has sacrificed his life for us. And now he calls us to the sacrifice, sacrificial living. And it includes giving to the work of the Lord. I would love to imagine, I do imagine, that at RBC, we are so united in heart and mind. We recognize that what we have is not our own and that we share everything we have so that there are no needy people amongst us. Could that be so? Are some of you saying, but wait, that was New Testament early? Guess what, guys? This is still New Testament time. This is not a different dispensation. This is not a different time period. This is the church. Guess what you and I are? We're the church. Jesus had already gone back to heaven when this was happening. He hasn't come back again yet. 
We're in the same time period as when this was happening. So you can't say, well, this was a different time or this was a different era. Okay, guess what? This is our time. This is now. Brothers and sisters, let's rise to the occasion. Let's be the people God has called us to be. And in this area, let's prove God for who he says he is. In way back to the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 3, this is what the Lord says to you and I. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try me. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. That's the blessing that God offers to us. Brothers and sisters, let's be a community that demonstrates, that lives out this spiritual discipline, and in so doing, follow in the life of sacrifice that the Lord Jesus has modeled for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We bless you. We know, Father, that the Lord Jesus gave everything. We know, Father, that you gave everything. He that spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not now along with him freely give us all things? Father, you are such a good God. You are such a giving God. We thank you. Everything that we have, Father, all that we are, we owe to you. Father, help us to be those that grasp this and that enjoy the privilege of living lives that are lives of sacrifice, that are lives of giving back to you, to others, to those around us. Lord, may we be a community of believers that lives out the truth that we see in the fourth of Acts. May we be those that truly care for one another and in so doing fulfill the law of Christ. So we thank you. We love you. We pray.